Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is week number two of our play readings with the theme for Old Acquaintance. This week's entry is uh, a play called, oddly enough, Should Old Acquaintance. The playwright is David Nicholson from Toronto, Canada. The play is being read by Danielle Bates in the part of Chloe, Kristen Sad in the part of Sherry, and taking the part of Joseph is Milo Bohack. Scene one. The lights come up on the living room of Joseph's East Village condo. Cleo is watering the plants. The front door opens and Joseph enters. Did you get lucky in Montreal? Didn't your parents teach you any manners? Sure, but where's the fun in that? Yeah, good point. How are the kids? Well, kind of mopey, like they always are when you're away. When I told them you were due back today, they could hardly contain themselves. Yeah. You know what they tell me? Is that they can't wait till I'm out of town and they get to see you more often. <gasps> Who told? Fergus, I bet. You can never trust a ficus to keep a secret. <clears throat> You're home early? Client wrapped up early. Mm. No reason to stick around. Uh, so you didn't get lucky in Montreal. Yeah, since you insist on knowing every detail of my personal life... Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. <sighs> Business trips are for, you know, business. Yeah, monkey business. (laughs) What about Chicago and Denver? Hey, I am an eligible single man. Is it my fault if I attract women of a certain age? Besides, Helen and... uh, Janine. Right. Are both lovely. They just live too far away. How about a hundred-mile rule for meeting women? Locally sourced dates. And I'm not talking about the former girlfriends you keep phoning. They're former for a reason, you know. How am I going to do that? Online dating? Well, no. Ew. Yeah, romance and resumes. Not a winning combination. I'm holding out for a spontaneous lightning bolt. That's what I told you. Try to get lucky close to home. Yeah. Dating advice from someone whose idea of a hot Friday night is hanging around with the old geezer next door. I'll get back to you. Hey, eligible young men aren't as plentiful as women of a certain age. Don't blame me, Cleo. I gave you Benjamin's email. Oh, I'm not going to email a man I never met. Tell him to pay his aged father a visit while he's still alive. Even your married son visits more than he does. That's because Stephanie and I make the arrangements and Nathan tags along. Mm. Although I hear both boys have been to see their mother recently. That reminds me. You got another letter from her lawyer. Oh, that's bound to be good news. The mail's on the kitchen table. Meanwhile, I got a couple of hot fellas panting for me in the study. Mm. Oh, what shall it be? Nasty letter from divorce lawyer or office voicemail? Hmm. Please enter your password to access your messages. You have 39 new messages. Main menu. To listen to your messages, press 1. First new message. Mr. Bork, this is Crystal, assistant to... Next new message. Hi, Joseph, have you seen... Next new message. Frederick Poniatowski here. Next new message. Joseph, this is Sherry Dawson. I don't know if you remember me, but we knew each other uh, briefly a long time ago, in the early 70s. Could you please call me? 215-555-0182. I look forward to hearing from you. End of message. To delete this message, press 7. To save it, press... I still got it, Fergus. Mm. A voice from Getting Lucky circa 1970? (laughs) As a matter of fact, yes. And really, that's all it was. I wonder why she's calling me. I bet that's a question that's been asked a few times the other way around. Oh, I feel a story coming on. Yeah, I'm not sure you're old enough for this one. Oh? Try me. Hmm. Sherry Dawson. In 1971, she lived in one of the oldest communal houses in the East Village, not far from here, along with a woman I worked with. Okay, okay, a woman I'd slept with once, and we both agreed it wasn't ever going to happen again, but we still liked each other. Irene. Did I mention it was 1971? 
Yes, Joseph, you did. It's okay. I watched Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice in my film studies class. Anyway, I dropped in on Irene one night when the house decided to go to the Fillmore East. Yeah, that's how they talked. The house decided to go. Someone had scored tickets for Taj Mahal. <gasps> I know him! Oh, my dad took me to Lincoln Center a couple of years ago. He sang Karina, Karina with uh, Wynton Marsalis and Eric Clapton. Oh, I love those old guys. <laughs> yeah. The Fillmore was alive that night. Everybody was dancing in the aisles, even on top of the seats. We were just a couple of feet from the band. The famous Fillmore East didn't have a dance floor? Nope. I think it was originally a theater, and Bill Graham didn't want to spend the money to take the seats out. He was the owner, right? He was the capitalist promoter of the entire hippie generation. He'd fit in around here today. I've heard the whole Fillmore East building is a condo now with a bank on the main floor. Oh, uh, rental apartments, I think. Uh, some of it for low income, too. Or it was a few years ago. Yeah, well, that's something. Anyway, the band was awesome. Can you believe there were four tubas? Four. Hot, sweaty, sexy sound. I was quite the creative dancer in those days. In a freaky 60s sort of way. I'm shocked. I tell you. Shocked! Sherry and I danced. What can I say? Uh, together? Like Taj had written the music just for us. Oh, groovy. Yeah. That kind of magic didn't happen often, but when it did, it was very special and very hot. I can't remember how long we danced, but I know we ended up in bed. Totally not surprising. You know, it didn't happen as often as you might think. But it happened with Sherry. Yes. I, I can't even remember if there was a second night or if that was it, but I do remember she was the first woman who ever asked me to... I guess there's some things I'm not old enough to tell you. <laughs> I forgive you. So, are you going to phone her back? She's your age, she's local, she's hot on the dance floor, and that's just for starters. Yeah, she might have cooled down over the last... Forty years. Or she might not. Oh, and she's phoning you. She is. I wonder why. I will call her. I don't have all day. It, it would be a private phone call, uh, you know? Don't you have plants that need attention? I didn't water the ones in your bedroom yet. I think we want them looking especially nice, don't we? Wink, wink. Kids today. I know. What would you do without us? Or me, anyway. Just go slow. Forty years is a long time. Joseph starts to dial the phone. As it starts to ring, the lights come up on the coffee shop patio where Sherry sits with a coffee and a book. Sherry! May I speak to, uh... <clears throat> uh, uh... Hi. You must be Joseph. Yes, uh, I am. It's been a long time. Over forty years. I'm sorry, but here you return my call and I can't talk. I have to leave um, in about two minutes. I'm so sorry. I, I understand. I You didn't know when I would call. I just thought I should... Thank you. Uh, I'd love to talk more. Can we meet tonight? Uh, coffee after dinner? We could meet here. I'm at a coffee shop right now. Oh, sure. I, I like coffee. Do you know the Cafe Crema on East 9th? Uh, I do. I like it. It's kind of my home away from home. Would 7 o'clock be too soon? Yes. I mean, yes, seven o'clock is fine. Uh, I'll be there. I look forward to it, Joseph. Me too, Sherry. Till then. Till then. Sherry hangs up. Huh. Good thing I told you to go slow. Sheesh. So why did she call? Joseph, she called because she wants to see you again. You're an attractive single man, remember? Yeah, of course. I'm irresistible. Scene two. The sidewalk patio of the Cafe Crema. Joseph is sitting with an empty coffee cup. Sherry arrives. Sherry, you haven't changed a bit. Thank you. You must be Joseph. I am. And it's okay. I'll admit to several more pounds and a lot less hair than in 1971. <laughs> well, you're not wearing your leather-patched pants. <sighs> Did you know they started out as ordinary bell-bottom jeans? Every time I, uh, they ripped, I sewed another leather patch till one day you couldn't see any denim at all. 
I'd run into people who said, I don't recognize the face, but I could never forget those pants. They were great for dancing, especially to Taj Mahal. Yes, we danced, didn't we? I mean, who would have guessed Phil Maurice would uh, be a bank now? Bill Graham, probably. <laughs> the rest of the building has uh, become low-income apartments, I hear. Or maybe they're condos by now. Wouldn't be so bad. The East Village was what we needed 40 years ago, some of us. And maybe it's what we need now. I live in a condo. I do, too. To everything there is a season, I guess. I like that. Or as my daughter says, that was then, and this is now. <laughs> the older one, she's 32. My baby's 25. Yeah. Uh, son's 29 and 26. Mm. Can I get you a coffee? I'd love one. Just say it's for me. Well, this really is your home away from home. I'll be right back. Okay. Joseph exits into the coffee shop, taking his empty cup. Sherry sits still for a while, then rummages through her purse and pulls out what might be a locket. She looks at it until she hears Joseph returning and slips it back into her purse. I'm back. Yes. Thanks. Joseph. I had another daughter on November 20th, 1971. I named her Sarah Louise Dawson. I knew I couldn't keep her. I didn't want to keep her. I wasn't ready. I'm not going to say I was still a child myself, but I was very young. I, I signed the ad final adoption papers the day she was born. I stayed in the hospital for five more days and got to hold her and feed her. She was beautiful, as all babies are. I didn't see the new parents the day they came to pick her up. All I knew was that the nurses didn't bring her anymore. I've never seen Sarah again. Oh, Sherry. When I registered her birth, I put Frank's name down as the father. Maybe you never met him. Yeah. Now, Frank and I had lived together for six months. He moved out shortly before I ran into you. I told him, of course. But I didn't want anything from him, which suited him fine. Yeah, I It don't... must have been, I don't know, 15 years later, I was lying in bed, going over it in my mind, something I did often when I couldn't sleep. I was trying to work out when Sarah was conceived, the timing with Frank, with, with me. And it wasn't Frank. It had to be you. I went over it again and again and again, and it was you. Hmm. I've had plenty of time to think about how I could have made such a mistake. Although, mistake isn't the right word. 1971 may have been the sexual revolution, but you know, there was still incredible shame about being pregnant and unmarried. Was I prepared to believe Sarah was the result of a one-night stand and feel like an even bigger slut? Or was I going to believe her father was the man I'd had a semi-permanent relationship with? I wanted to believe it was Frank, so I did believe it. When I finally faced the truth 15 years later, I knew I had to tell you, but how? I had a vague recollection that you had gone someplace, but I had no idea where or how to get in touch with you, so I did nothing. I, I did go to Israel. I ended up working in a vineyard on a, on a kibbutz. Oh, that sounds intriguing. I was in Oxford in the late 70s. That's where I met my ex-husband. We traveled all through Europe, a, a lot of it, in wine country. I couldn't have done any of that if I'd... Of course you couldn't. You did the right thing. You must know that. I do. But let me finish. Sarah would have been 15 or so when I realized you must be her father and I hadn't told you. I lived with that on top of... Ugh. all the rest of it, for another 25 years. And then about four months ago, I read a book written by a young adoptee. It told how she and others like her decided to track down their biological parents. Very emotional, very powerful. I knew there are steps I can take to try to find Sarah, but it isn't my decision, it's hers. I have no right to take it away from her. But she can have children of her own now. And they could be getting to an age when they want to know. And if she did find me, she'd want to meet her father too, wouldn't she? I wouldn't be able to tell her where you were or even much about you, except you were 
A great dancer. <laughs> Do you still dance? Oh, uh, not, not in years. So I had to find you. It turns out it wasn't that difficult. I phoned Irene, and she said, you called her once a few years ago and that you'd gone to law school. I didn't tell her why I wanted to know. And from there, it wasn't difficult to find out where you worked. I don't know why I didn't call her 25 years ago. Uh, she wouldn't have known. And now, I've told you. Forty years. I know, I'm sorry, Joseph. No, no, I, I, I don't mean that. Forty years of guilt and 25 of them just because of me. Jeez, Sherry. I thought you'd hate me. Oh, uh, that's... No, no, I, I... I don't. Not even a bit. Look, I know how draining guilt can be, believe me. All I feel right now is how just horrible it, it must have been and how unfair it was that you had to carry all of this on your own. Who would I tell? Aside from assorted therapists over the years. It's not been so bad. But thank you, Joseph. If it makes you feel any better, I've been carrying my own 40 years of guilt, which I just realized tonight. What do you mean? How I'll I... tell you. Since my last marriage ended, I was married briefly before I met you. Starter marriage. I didn't, re didn't remember that. I probably didn't tell you. I don't think we talked a lot, or at all. In the two years since my wife left, I've phoned quite a few friends I used to know, a way of reaching back and trying to recover the person I was, I think. Anyway, when you called me, I, I was tickled pink. I, I enjoyed that little bit of swagger for several minutes. And I started to wonder why you had called. I mean, after all, it was a brief encounter a long time ago. And then I knew. How did before, you... Before I left for Israel in the fall of 71, I went to a party at your house. I guess Irene invited me. I, I don't remember. I do remember it was crowded that I saw you on the other side of the room and that you were visibly pregnant. Of course, it occurred to me that it might possibly be mine. So what did I do, responsible young man that I was? Did I walk right over and ask? No. Did I talk to you at all? No. What I did was stand there and try to catch your eye. I couldn't. You never once looked in my direction. And that was enough to convince me that the baby wasn't mine. Because if it was, you would have looked at me, right? Jeez. I don't remember that. As far as I recall, I never saw you again after our night together. Are you sure? I'm sure. Though maybe you didn't look at me because you didn't know I was there. <laughs> Point is, that night... I convinced myself so completely, so deeply, that five minutes after talking to you on the phone 40 years later, I knew you were calling to tell me about our baby. How's that for deep? That's... I had hidden the truth, or what I was afraid was the truth, under that flimsy bit of self-deception for 40 years. I guess the guilt hid with it. Oh, Joseph. Yeah, it seems fair. Sympathetic guilt pangs, that's sweet. Complimentary guilt pangs, anyway. At least you're aware of it now. Yeah, at least that. I'm becoming aware of a lot of things. All thanks to the miracle of divorce. Oh, miraculous in many ways. Yeah, that's what I tell myself. You've been in therapy. For years, off and on. Now it's on again. Yeah. My first session was the day after my wife said, Joseph, we need to talk. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, some people need a two-by-four to the head. <laughs> yeah, therapy's been good. We've gone back to early years, you know, the mother thing. Oh, I do know that, and the 
father thing. So many ways a parent can go wrong. It gives you something to think about when you're one yourself, doesn't it? Another reason I know I did the right thing in 1971. What did you do with yourself after that? You said you met your ex-husband at Oxford. I had just started my master's when I met you. I went off the rails a bit after I had Sarah. Then I got serious and finished it. And then the Ph.D. at Oxford. Oh, I'm impressed. I've forgotten what discipline you were in. That would have been hard to do with a kid. I could never have done it if I'd kept her. Art history. Huh. I did my dissertation on Chagall and magical symbolism. I teach now. Oh, his stained glass windows were a work of genius. Of course, the Hadassah windows in Jerusalem. We put Chagalls on our labels at the kibbutz. <laughs> my favorite was double portraits with wine glass on our emerald Rieslings. <laughs> More coincidences. You like Chagall, and I like Riesling. And you teach students about artists, and I make sure artists can make a living. Copyright and trademarks. Yeah, I went to law school in the 80s. <laughs> It's karma. <laughs> <laughs> Scene three. Several hours later, Joseph enters the living room. Cleo appears within seconds. So? Uh, just your average boy meets girl and 40 years later, girl tells boy they made a baby together evening? No. Yep. Wow. Yeah, I know. Tell me more. Was it a boy or a girl? What's she like? Or him? Oh, God, does she want money? Why is Sherry telling you now? Talk to me! No, it's not about money. Far from it. So what is it about? Patience, Cleo. <sighs> the child's name is Sarah Louise. Or it was before her adoptive parents picked her up at five days old. Sherry hasn't seen her since. Forty years ago, she convinced herself some respectable guy was the father. Interesting, interesting thing, guilt. When she realized much later that he wasn't and I was, she didn't know how to reach me until this week. Oh. Oh, no. Does Sherry know where she is? Can she find her? Does she want to find her? Do you? Does she know anything at all about her? No. The agency told her the adoptive couple were teachers, and the wife was going to stay home with Sarah, but beyond that, no names, no location, nothing. <sighs> Sherry is definite that any contact is up to Sarah, not her. I'd love to see what kind of person she's become. A daughter. Benjamin's sister. Yes! Oh, Ben and Nathan have a sister! Ooh, I wonder what they'll think about that. You'll tell them? Of course! She's their sister, I... Well, probably. Probably? Oh, depending on blood tests, I guess. Does that bother you? Maybe it should, but it doesn't. Sherry's sure. Could you find her yourself? I thought about it. Yeah, but it's Sherry's call. She's earned it. Oh, I, I hardly know what to say. Well, there's something else. When she told me she named the baby Sarah, I was so stunned I couldn't say anything, but... Ever since Israel, I've had a thing for Old Testament names. Calling the boys Nathan and Benjamin was my idea. If we had had a girl, my first choice of name would have been Sarah. That's big, isn't it? Huge. Especially for you, Mr. Lawyer, who's not as rational as he claims to be. Yeah, I can't argue with that. But until Sarah decides to contact Sherry, if ever, all I'll ever know about her is a name she had for five days. But you know, it's, it's okay. Uh-oh. What? Didn't we talk about the perils of dating former girlfriends? She was never that. We barely knew each other. I don't think she even recognized me tonight. Look, we had one night of great dancing and pretty good sex in 1971. That's all we wanted. Maybe it's all we needed. Jesus, that's deep, isn't it? Mm. Now it's 40 years later. We're different people and we're attracted by different things. For everything there is a season. Yes. Think of the guts it must have taken to tell me after all these years. Oh, my God, yes. It set the tone for the rest of the evening. Open, honest, vulnerable. Oh, my. Catnip for you. Catnip for both of us, I think. So, maybe you both got lucky. Yeah, maybe. End of play. That was the play Should Old Acquaintance by playwright David Nicholson. The players were Kristen Sad, Danielle Bates, and Milo Bohack. 
David was kind enough to give us an interview, and of course, besides the usual questions of like, where did this play come from, we kind of got sidetracked onto this subject and that subject and ended up all over the place. You'll hear it. It's pretty interesting. Just in case it interests you, I got into theater in the Yukon, but maybe that doesn't. Maybe uh, that's not a... That was a big... It's a very cultural place. Talk to me about this, because uh, uh, down here in the lower 48, uh, um, we're not quite familiar with... We know where the... Well, some of us know where the Yukon is. I know where the Yukon is. Um, I, I, I lived there almost 10 years. And um, so, what was it about the Yukon that got you into theater? Uh, well, they have it. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> being honest, there were a lot of women okay. involved with theater, uh, and not so many men. Uh, and uh, I hear some I had, cases being packed all across America right now. There you go. I was not somebody who. Uh, had done theater in you know in school, uh, and uh, and I just uh, got asked to do it, and I did it, and uh, you know first play was a was a big success, and it sort of went from there. So when you say you got asked to do it, had you hadn't written a play before this, correct? Oh oh no, this was this was we're talking back in the seventies, and we're talking acting. Oh okay, all right. And and that's why you know it's a social thing, and it's uh, and there were women there, uh, and in fact, my uh, I met my last wife there in the in the theater. Not a not a new story, but there you go. Well, it, it happens, and usually yep. in the places that we frequent or inhabit closely we do tend to meet uh, those who remain close to us for years and, and sometimes we marry them um i know uh several people who have benefited immensely and fortuitously from that uh from that happenstance um yeah hard, hardly unique is it uh, hardly unique but it's uh, it's 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 a good thing i think so how did you get into writing uh, actually, the the so and it, and it was through translating. I had about ten years ago or thereabouts. I had decided to uh, to step away from the theater I was involved in, and that was so that that involvement had been acting, uh, designing, building, that kind of stuff. So you really went for this whole hog. Well, yes, I did. So I decided to step away from it for, uh, for a while. Uh, and from that particular theater, uh, personal things. Sure, yeah. And theater so, can drive but, you nuts. What, but, are you kidding me? <laughs> what to do? Then it, it just it hit me. Well, actually, I, I read I'm, I became bilingual, which in Canadian terms is French-English, Right. So I, I upped my knowledge of French in my 40s when I just decided I got a bit obsessive about it, uh, did some uh, immersion and all kinds of courses and uh, uh, became, uh, uh, became fairly comfortable with the language. One of the... Uh, and then it... it uh, I stopped. I put it aside uh, when my marriage had ended. So my marriage had ended. I put that aside. I got involved with the theater. That's also not a new story. Um, and uh, and then I wanted to step away from that. So I thought, well, I read Tartuffe. That's what I did. I had never read it before. I'd heard about Moliere's Tartuffe, and it and it just it occurred to me, wow, this is one hell of a funny play and a good play. I've, I've never seen it before. Um, and it just, it just struck me that I could still stay at home and away from the theater, and I could combine two of the loves in my life, French language and, uh, and theater, by having a go at translating it. So your first actual attempt at writing a play was a translation. Absolutely. 
when did you decide to write your own from something from oh real life or something from one of the deep dark recesses of your own mind yeah well in fact translation and adaptation is what i've mostly done uh this uh, uh the play that you've taken on is uh oh year year and a half ago that uh only that that long ago is that and your first home written play it, non-translation indeed, indeed. Uh, what I had had been doing in translating, so I'd done a couple of Moliere's, and they're pretty much just translations. I'm, you know, he's Moliere. Of course he is. Uh, and and I haven't, uh, I changed them to prose instead of verse. Uh, but other than that, I'm very quite faithful to the story and to his characters and thoughts and and all the rest of it. Okay, that's a, also, that's that's a point I want to come back to. Yep, okay. Um, and I I will address that in a second, but I want to get back to Should Old Acquaintance just for a moment. Okay. Yep, absolutely. Just I, suffice I it to say for that point, I went from pure translation to doing some lesser known plays to adapting them. Okay. Uh and and changing, combining characters, leaving characters out, changing the story, uh and so it wasn't uh, it wasn't that much of a step forward. I was doing a lot of, for want of a better term, and I'll come back to this original writing. Okay, um, it wasn't me, a big step to doing this on my own. Let me actually go with what you were just talking about. You were talking about changing plays, leaving characters out, rewriting. Which plays were these? And what was the playwrights? Process? Could rest assured, this is all. This was all public domain work, uh, so I've got the right to do it. Okay. Uh, and it would be, uh, it's all French, the translation and adaptation work. It's all French. Uh, I went to sort of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, when France had uh, certainly the healthiest theater industry in the world. I think I can say that. Uh, pretty confidently, some pretty good stuff. All right. Uh, and but a lot of it was for one reason or another dated, and hasn't made it through. So uh, I did a lot of research, found a lot of, a lot of cool plays, and uh, uh, you know changed, made some changes. Okay. Are you are these now presented as? The original plays with the original title, original author with an uh, adaptation by? Because I've never, okay, I've never adapted a play or translated a play um, from one language to another. So this is all new territory for me. Yeah. So I go on, uh, on, uh, actually I use three different terms. So Moliere's Tartuffe, translated by David Nicholson. Uh... Cyprien, uh, by the play, adapted by David Nicholson from the play Divorçant by Henri Mayac, by Victoria Sardou, pardon me. And then, uh, you know, I've got another one where I say, uh, based on the original French play. Okay. By so-and-so. So it's three, it's a continuum. All right. Three different different things uh, it's it's all, all of them public domain gotcha so uh, wow more questions than I thought here um, <laughs> when you look at a play that is you know in in the original in original French and has not been done uh, or has rarely been done and you want to update it where does it start where you start actually physically changing the topography of the play rather than bringing the words to us through your own point of view? See, it's, that's, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where the responsibility is as an adapter or a translator, okay, especially you have a play in the original, original French and yep. you see it one way, the same way, and I'm going to liken this to any 
homegrown theater where you pick up any old play and the director translates it his way and directs the actors their way and then the actors get the text and they choose to do or if they are allowed to to or encouraged to uh, translate you know the lines of the texts in their own particular way changing the way it, the play is actually performed which might not be the way that the original playwright would like to see it or had imagined it now you are taking plays and physically changing the topography of them and i'm right. just yeah and i'm just mm, not so much okay well, it depends. Give us an example. It depends. So starting with Tartuffe, which is, you know, Tartuffe is the religious hypocrite who's wormed his way into the wealthy household. Absolutely. That, and and uh, what I never did care for were, and there's a lot of them. I mean, he's been translated or adapted hundreds of time, if, times, if not thousands by now. Right. Uh, I don't really care for the ones that mm, anglicize the names and actually change it. There's a couple, hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes that's listening, uh, actually change to the broadcast headquarters of a Southern American televangelist studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I can see it happening, sure. and obviously... With Tartuffe, people like Jimmy Swagger come to mind. Absolutely. I mean, on the same note, people retranslate Shakespeare into, you know, Hamlet on the Moon or Romeo and Juliet yep. in, oh my gosh, some Lower East with, Side New York neighborhood. With Moliere, I don't do that. Uh, so with Moliere, the directors have done an, an astounding variety of settings. Let's say French productions of Moliere, keeping the original text, have done an astounding collection of productions. I, I go to Paris as often as I can uh, and, and see my kind of plays as often as I can. Sure. Uh, more or less in Europe, there'd be far more productions of Moliere using modern dress now than using period dress, far more. Uh, it, I don't know, it might be true that in you know Canada, the States, England, there are, well, certainly at least as many Shakespeare productions in modern dress than there are in Shakespearean dress. Uh, you know... We do a lot of them, and in right. France and Europe, they do a lot of Moliere's, so they, they're looking for new things. They don't change the words, but they change the settings. Well, I think it's a question And they of... change the, when you're talking about an actor or a director translating a play to their own vision. Uh, in the original French, that's done just a lot. Americans do Tartuffe usually as a farce, very funny. Mm-hmm. Some of the French and definitely the German do Tartuffe very dark. So they do. So, I mean, that's what the classic is. To my mind, a classic is something that allows the director allows multiple interpretations of it. Wouldn't have stuck around so long if it didn't. I totally agree with that. But it's a, a with popular plays such as Tartuffe and. Um, uh, just about anything from Shakespeare, you have to change it up in order to keep it relatively fresh. I mean, we know every every college theater student knows Tartuffe. They know Hamlet. They know um, several other plays from from that time period. Um, and if you're going to redo them, you can't just do the same old production. Right. Uh, well, that. The, what I've tried to do is to, add, but keeping the words, at least oh, that's the way yeah. it's done, in yeah. using the French original text. So what I've tried to do with Moliere is to write in, and I've called it a heightened universal level of language. Mm-hmm. So it's not ordinary conversation. Well, first off, it's changed to prose. It's not verse. Right. I, I don't care for the sing-songy a lot of the the English translations are all inverse to my mind or doggerel. 
sorry, Richard Wilbur. <laughs> the, the, uh, so I've done it in prose, but it's a heightened level. It's not ordinary conversation. Sure. It's universal because it's not colloquial. I went to great lengths and spent a lot of time to make sure that my language wouldn't look out of place if somebody wanted, if a director wanted to do it in period dress, if they wanted to do it nineteenth century, if they wanted to do it today. One of the the second last production of it was done of, of mine was done in modern dress. And it opened. It opens with the whole family, except for the father, uh, coming out and all getting a tongue lashing from the from the grandmother. And I've got the young kids. Oh, not I. It was the director had the young kids lounging against the walls of the stage, checking their cell phones, their smartphones. I saw one. No trans- tra- saw one translation of this years ago, where it was put up as a fifties, nineteen fifties. American TV comedy sitcom. <laughs> it, it, it was a very interesting, <laughs> interesting stage. But that was not that was using the same words, the same text that the first production of my Tartuffe, which won various prizes in Southern Ontario, had done in absolute period dress, wigs and all. Mm. The, the very same text. So yeah. I, I was really pleased with that because that meant I had recreated what the French have when they do Tartuffe. It's something that gives to the director full scope. Interesting. This is, uh, uh, how do, how do you put it forward? What do you change? What do you keep? How do you keep the actual story? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So doing Tartuffe, I keep the original story. I keep, you know, I'm, I'm quite faithful. When I'm doing some of the other the people that very experienced theater people here wouldn't know. Right. In fact, some of the French don't know. Uh, then I give myself the liberty of changing the story and the characters and, and whatever else. Well, we won't tell anybody. I'm, 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 I know people who uh, frequently, with at least with Shakespeare productions, they 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 change the text usually by taking pieces out. Um, yeah, I know I've done it myself, especially with Macbeth. I've ripped out a couple of sections that just I thought slowed the action down and had very little to do with the overall uh, arc of the play. Let's let's go to should old acquaintance uh, for a bit here before um, this. Before we take off, um, I did not know that this was your first play that you had written from a homegrown. I'm going to use the word homegrown as opposed to <laughs> translation. What sparked this? Oh, what sparked this off? This because this is a, a a play with a a lot of ethical ramifications. Yeah. Well, let it, let's get it out there. Something along this line happened to me. And uh, uh, it's obviously, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's in my mind. Right, of course, it is. Something yeah. like that doesn't uh, doesn't just slide off you. Uh, one would so, hope not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. It's a story that okay. uh, uh, that happened, and there's a lot of. Uh, uh, I mean, it's not. It's not all as it happened. That's right. for sure. Well, I think very but, few, very few plays are actually as they happened. Yeah, I mean, we, but, we give and take. We tell a story. That's our job. Not to not to relate the actual truth. I did get such a phone call, and and uh, eventually, mm-hmm. I I did meet her. Well, and by her, I mean the the person that I had known uh, years and years and years earlier. Sure. Yeah. So, um, and so it, you know, it, it brings various things up and couple that with the fact that, uh, um, that I, I, you know, sort of become, I have become aware of the role of guilt and well, two, two things separately and then coming together. One's memory and how much of memory is real. That's uh, always a good much, question. Yeah. How much just isn't, right. and you you 
it, I I had uh, there's a mention in the play that characters had a starter marriage, uh, you know, many years before before he met uh, that woman even. Absolutely, and, yeah. And uh, uh, so so let's let's uh, let's talk about this for a second because yeah. it, it it raises. Um, at least a question in my mind, and I'm and I'm sure it does with with several of our listeners. Uh, Sherry's judgment, uh, Sherry from the play, talking yep. about a possible per- uh, you know, the knowledge of of how a possible paternity or or maternity changes a person. Um, it was her decision that the choice to acknowledge this paternity or maternity lies with the child. Okay. Not yep. with the, you know, and, and I'm going to use the term accidental parents. Okay. So part one of my question is, once you have the knowledge of this, how does the parent's life change if they go with the caveat that contacting the child is not within their purview, not not their right, that it is specifically the child's decision to seek out his or her particular parents. Um, and should that parent's life change? Right? It, it's, everything's going along nice and smooth, and all of a sudden you have this knowledge or possible knowledge, and yet you're in a position where you agree ethically that you should not do something about it until something is done about it from the other end. How does that how does that work? Where do you sit on that? Oh boy, that uh, that brings up a lot of things. Uh, one is it's just it's not always easy to say, well, I won't do anything about that. I'll just wait and see. I'll just you know, I'll just let that float out there. I won't take. Uh, I, I won't do anything about it. So that's uh, that's a certain level of of letting go a certain level of quesera, that doesn't always come easy. Nah, it seems like a very hard thing to do, actually. Yeah. There's a, there's a woman who was a, a, a cabinet minister in the province of Ontario, uh, somebody I, I respect a great deal, who went public, who had herself been in the position that Sherry was in, and had uh, I don't there, to my knowledge there wasn't uh, uh, a man involved except for the obvious right. man was part of the later story at any rate. But she actually hired uh, she'd given a baby up and uh, at about the same time as uh, as Sherry did in the play, uh, the same era roughly. Right. Um, and hired a hired a private investigator, and and actually did find the child and has written. Uh, I don't know if she wrote a book about it, but she's. Uh, did she make contact? Yes, okay. yes, and uh, and and pretty successfully by all uh, everything that I've that I've read locally has yeah. said that it turned out quite well. Seems to me a very a very uh, chancy thing to do. Uh, it's the the emotional consequences could be either miraculous or wholly devastating. Uh, on on more than one person, absolutely, which, and yeah. that's the tricky part. Yeah, you're not just playing with your own life and your own emotions. Uh, there's other people that are. Uh, whose emotions are equally or more in play. I think what Joseph uh, is is thinking in the play, although that's not really well developed, I, I am, by the way, working on a longer play, uh, taking off from that point. Hmm. But um, Joseph is really third in line. He figures, anyway, in importance in that. Sure. Uh, whose emotions are at stake? Sherry's ahead of them, and uh, uh, and uh, the child would be would be further ahead as well. 
I, I think many of us would agree that the child is is of paramount importance. Um, once ha- having the knowledge that that he or she or she in this case um, was given up and therefore adopted, that you know there are quote real parents out there, and it it should be her choice to seek or not seek. Um, and I do agree with you, but I think it also seems Joseph's role is the easiest one by far because he has not had this knowledge until right. very, very late until actually the time of the play. So there is a lot of dealing with guilt or dealing with the knowledge of that he has not had to deal with. So absolutely. Yeah. And I'm just wondering because it is now fresh in his mind. What yeah, it's, you said you're writing a longer piece based on this. I'd be very interested to see what happens because my question about this whole play is, he seems almost, and I'm I'm going to use this term with without being sarcastic or belittling, a bit laissez-faire about the whole thing. He seems to agree quite amiably. All right, that things should remain as they are, and part of me is just you know. It's got to thinking about this, knowing that there is a child out there who is yours, probably is yours. Um, we get back to the question of, you know, do you seek? Do you actually take the action to find out, you know, something about that? Or do you just sit back? It's 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 a very, very tough call, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, and when you know that somebody, you know, famous person in local public life has actually hired a a private investigator, you think, oh, I could do that. Sure, yeah, for $750 a day. Yep, but there are also uh, there are also online adoption finders. Right. uh, Which are, that have mirror mirror pages for uh, adoptees looking for birth parents and birth parents looking for children that have uh, been adopted out. Uh, so people don't, uh, people don't let it go. And, uh, in, in Ontario where I live, the law changed mostly as a result of that cabinet minister, um, to allow birth parents to actually find out. Huh. Now, it doesn't, to find out the information from adoption agencies, it doesn't go so far as to uh, give them the right to make contact, uh, but, you know, yeah. people would do that any, anyway, and I haven't I, heard of, it, yeah. of anybody being arrested I, for wrongful it's, contact. It's, it's certainly a very vexing question. Well, David Nicholson, thank you so very, very much for um, a very interesting interview and a, and a wonderful play.